beginning in verse 1, Colossians 2, Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So, when, you, uh, when we begin chapter 2, remember that even though our Bibles are divided up into chapters and all of that, that's not how it was written. And when it comes to the epistles, which are basically letters, um, you really shouldn't think of this in terms of chapters. It does make it easier uh, to locate things, which is the main purpose of uh, these types of things. But uh, again, let me remind you of what he's just finished talking about, which is the previous two verses of, uh, or the last two verses of chapter 1. Again, speaking of Christ, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So again, remember that Paul, as he's writing, he is an apostle. Uh, As an apostle, uh, the the responsibility of the apostles was to basically lay what we would call the theological foundation of the church. Um, He was the authority. Uh, he wasn't the only authority. The other, all the other apostles have the same authority he, he has, but of course he was the one that wrote most of the New Testament. So he's writing as one to them who is very concerned about their spiritual growth. Uh, he wants to see them flourish spiritually. Uh, and so he's writing to them, even though he's not met them, uh, as one who's an authority. Clearly, as, as we have seen it when we walked our way through 2 Corinthians on Sunday morning, uh, Paul never lords that over individuals, uh, but he doesn't hide from the fact that that's his responsibility and that he has that kind of responsibility. So he begins by basically kind of pouring out his heart, letting them know um, what he is thinking and what he's going through. So when he says, well, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, uh, the word struggle there really is talking about this inner conflict he has or this inner striving. It's not a bad thing. Basically, the idea is he's wrestling in prayer for them. So he's, he's praying for them. He's praying earnestly for them. Uh, he pleads with God for them. He understands the kind of uh, difficulties that they face uh, in their city. Uh, and from their background, is what they face as believers. And, so he, and he knows that, um, because we've, we've looked at it in chapter 1, and they spent some time looking at it, he knows that heresy has made its way. Um, to that city, to that church, and heresy has a way of pulling people away from Christ. Um, when, we, when we mention that, remember that pulling someone away from Christ, that doesn't mean that that individual, if they are a true believer, becomes lost. Uh, but their spiritual growth is going to be greatly inhibited. And normally what that, what that entails is when our spiritual growth is inhibited, we then begin to regress. Uh, and then things will begin to happen to us. Normally, uh, you will begin to have maybe some doubts. It doesn't mean you have all of these. You can have a combination of these things. But this is kind of what happens to the individual. You lose your confidence in Christ. You may lose your confidence in your salvation. You lose confidence uh, in prayer. Um, you lose confidence that God is really concerned about what's going on. Uh, you can be affected not only intellectually in, in, in what you know and think and feel about God, but then that will begin and can begin to affect you emotionally, where you begin to maybe perhaps lack uh, the peace of God. Um, You begin to have maybe greater anxiety. You begin to worry about things, um, trying to maybe figure out things on your own and trying to manage life on your own uh, as if it all depended upon you. Uh, So there's a lot of things that can be affected in the life of the individual when when heresy comes in. I've mentioned to you a lot just because of my inner workings with a lot of individuals in the jail, a lot of the inmates who have been exposed uh, to a lot of different churches in their lives. Most individuals in jail have not been a faithful attender of one church where they've been growing and they've been discipling the Word of God because that individual normally doesn't end up in jail. Uh, but they've been, been, in, been to churches maybe sporadically. Sometimes they're in churches where 
there's not much of an emphasis on really teaching and learning and understanding and applying the Word of God. Uh, and so as a result, they are easily swayed into believing a lot of different things. Um, and so as a result, they're exposed to a lot of bad teaching. Uh, some, and a lot of that bad teaching does affect them. And so their view of God is very skewed. Um, they, may, uh, they may have kind of a superstitious view of God. In other words, if I, if I say the right things, if I do the right things, if I say the right prayer the right way, God will bless me. Um, I've told you before about some of these things may sound silly, but they're not really. Remember, we're all human beings, and what I've found out through the years is that sometimes what inmates do, they're just kind of maybe more openly expressing what a lot of people are also thinking, um, but they're doing it. So, for example, um, a lot of the guys in jail will... You know, there's a, what we call a Gideon New Testament. It's a New Testament that kind of fits in your pocket. A lot of inmates want that. They're not reading it, right? They put it in their pocket because they believe that it'll bring them good luck. Not quite like a good luck charm, but the idea is they, don't, they won't say this out, uh, but I've talked enough for them to kind of figure this out. The idea is that if you go to court and you have that Bible there, maybe the judge will see it and think differently of you. For some, I've had them laugh, but then tell me I was right. I, I said, I said, it's almost like you're thinking that if you go to court and God sees you have a New Testament, God is thinking, whoa, look at that, he has a Bible. Uh, I think I need to influence the judge to go easy on him. And some of the inmates will laugh and they go, how did you know? <laughs> Alright, so there's kind of this superstitious attitude about that. And, or, and the, or sometimes what they'll do is they'll take it out when they're in the cell waiting for court and they'll read some of it because, again, the idea is, well, if I go through these motions, then good things will happen. So they have this view of God um, that is kind of superstitious. Um, it's, uh, uh, and, and, of course, it, it prevents them, in some cases, from really knowing who Christ is if they don't know who Christ is. In other cases, um, it prevents them from growing as a believer because they have all of these bad ideas. Um, and uh, um, you, you can just see the, the turmoil in their life and then the onslaught of just a lot of bad decisions uh, that are made by these individuals in life. So Paul then, as he prays for them, Paul is a great individual to have praying for you. Um, let me just address this real quick. Um, I'm never against trying to get as many people as possible to pray for you. I think that's a good thing. However... We should never think that just because we have a lot of people praying for us, that that's the best way to go about it. Because, you know, there's a passage in James that does say, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. That's singular. And so, even though we do want many praying for us, we want, I guess the stress would be quality people. I want individuals who have a really solid walk with the Lord. I want them, I want those individuals praying for me. I don't know who all those people are. But that's what's important. So I would say that Paul would probably fall into the category of a solid believer. <laughs> so if he's praying for me and for my growth, I think that's a great thing. Uh, and uh, we, we want to see that happen. Um, it's been kind of interesting, you know, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but on Monday night uh, during the NFL football game, a young man, uh, one of the players had a heart attack on the field. And uh, he was. They had to do CPR on him on the field for about nine minutes before they could load him in the and the ambulance. They even had to use a defibrillator on him. So the game was canceled, uh, which I think would be normal. Um, and so as they were, as the various sports commentators were talking about this event while it was happening, and they're trying to fill airtime, um, it was clear that you had there was a large number of these players gathered together and praying. Uh, besides the looks of being distraught when you see your friend who's only 24, you know, basically they're trying to save his life uh, kind of a thing. And so it's a very emotional moment. And so there was a lot of individuals and they were kind of seeing this and um, there was one sports commentator, which as far as I know is not a believer, um, and uh, he was kind of at a loss for words as, as they kind of went back to a studio setting. And they were just, you know, they're talking about the event. The event's kind of over. There's not a whole lot more to say. But they're not breaking into any other programming, nothing scheduled. So they kind of have to fill the time. So they're kind of trying to 
I guess, rehash whatever. So this guy says, well, I keep noticing that the, the Buffalo Bill players and the, and the Cincinnati Bengals and all these players are asking for us to remember this young man and his family and to pray for them. And he said, so I, I he, here's what he says, I think we should pray for him. So ESPN is, is becoming more and more politically liberal. Right? There's people who've been canceling their their uh, subscriptions to ESPN because of that. It's been coming out more and more. People are kind of upset that they're kind of filling sports with political things, whatever. So it, it's liberal. So I know that someone there is losing it when they hear this guy say this. And then the guy says, he says, I think we should just do it right now. <laughs> and so then he says, so I'm going to pray out loud. I'm going to bow my head. And I'm going to close my eyes. And I'm going to do it now. And so he prayed. About 90 seconds. I was thinking, not bad for a pagan. Um, you know, he addressed God. He, 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 in the end, said, we pray this in your name. He didn't, I don't think he knew which name to use. And that's okay. Because uh, he was always, obviously very sincere. Uh, but it did reveal, I thought, number one, in these kinds of moments, how individuals have that sense. There is something else there. There is something else there that's real. We need God. God is the only one we can turn to. You know, and so and he was doing that. Um, and uh, I just thought it was interesting to see that take place. But he said in his prayer... He said, uh, and he mentioned this also before he prayed, he says, and we believe in prayer. He never said why, I don't think he could say why, but he said we believe in prayer. And so I, and I thought that was great, it's, it's almost like this human condition that, that you see in Romans 1, where God says that he's clearly placed certain things in all men. We know that God exists. Um, we know that. And so I just thought that was on display there, which was fantastic. Uh, but even, even the unbelieving world, Many of them do have this sense that prayer is a real thing. Prayer does something. Now, we don't think of it in the sense that it does something like a chant, and there's magic in it, but we, we believe the person of God who answers prayer. So I say all of that just to remind us that, uh, once again, we should never de-emphasize the importance of prayer in our lives and in the lives of others. There is a habit that some people have, Maybe you've done it, or maybe you've thought it, um, and we don't intend to diminish prayer, but sometimes we end up saying this, well, I've been working on this problem, I've done all I can do, I guess all that's left is prayer. And it's almost as if we're saying, as a last resort, I'll do that. Now, it's still good that the individual recognizes that we should pray, but we should never think of it that we only pray once we've done everything we can. It, it's oftentimes a combination of both. But you never eliminate prayer because God does answer prayer. There's a great mystery in prayer. All right? And the mystery is, is, is based on a lot of our ignorance. Number one, we're praying to God who we know already knows everything. We're also praying to God who already knows what the outcome is going to be because he knows what he's going to do. We also know he's commanded us to pray and that it pleases him to work through our prayers. We know that our prayers make a difference, even though we know that God's still going to do what he's going to do. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, okay, how do I figure that out philosophically? I can't. But God has commanded me to do that. It's a duty that I have. God desires that we do that. And so I bring that up because sometimes when it comes to people that we care for, people that we love, or just people that we know, and there's really nothing that we can do, we should never think, well, I guess I can, just, I guess I can pray. No, that's a very important ministry. Um, it really is. It, it's, it's an, it would be one you may not get a lot of credit for uh, because we don't walk around bragging, saying, I'm a, uh, saying to people, you know I'm a great prayer warrior. What can I do for you? You know, we don't want to do that. Uh, but prayer is important. And then I would say especially in this sense, as people get older and we become more and more physically limited, uh, sometimes individuals think, well, there's not much I can do anymore, but I know I can pray. That... If, if a majority of older believers were to take prayer as serious as they should, there may be even a greater dynamic difference, uh, maybe with the witness of the church in our country, um, instead of kind of viewing it that way. It's human nature to do that. We're weak in the spirit. Uh, we're weak in the flesh. We know that. Uh, we ask God to help us. Um, but we should recognize 
really that that here Paul uses language where he's where he talks about this wrestling and this struggling where he's laboring in prayer. Part of that would at least be this. Um, when I was a teenager, our church did this a couple of times where we would have uh, uh, what we call a 24-hour prayer vigil. And so one, one day a year, what we did was we had the church set up. We had a, a, In the sanctuary, we had a desk, a lamp, a Bible, and uh, we had a list. And the, the goal was for there to be 24 hours straight of prayer, and people would sign up maybe for an hour, maybe for two hours, and they would come. They would come to the church and they would pray. Uh, we would have a list, like a prayer list of you know most urgent things, and then also maybe long-term things, uh, a list of those uh, that were related to people in the church that we were praying for their salvation, different things like that. And the idea was just for us to come to God and just you know kind of begin the year in a sense uh, by doing that. Um, and I remember that um, I was I was young, and so I signed up for an hour, thinking you know no big deal. And so I got, it was my turn, I think it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, and so I believed the person in front of me, and I sit down, and you know, I see all the things in the list, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm earnest, and I pray, and then when I finish, um, it's 2.15. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. <laughs> uh, I've already prayed for everything. Of course, if you know me, you know I can talk pretty quick. Man, and back then I was talking real fast, and I was just... <laughs> You know, so I kind of started over again. And I realized then that, man, this is hard. I mean, to pray for an hour, that's difficult. Because it's not normal. Um, and, of course, Satan wants to, you know, wants to hinder what we do. wants to discourage us in all of that. Um, so I, I say that not to discourage you, but to let you know that there is some work at times involved. Sometimes it's easy. You know, like if all of a sudden I get, if I, if I am suddenly told that one of my grandkids is always in a bad accident, do you know how easy it is to pray for them at that moment and to pray that God will spare them and that God will give them? That's easy. You're motivated. There's a sense of urgency. You know, all of that. Um, but for us, the, the ongoing business of prayer uh, really is important. And so I don't want us just to overlook too quickly Paul's language here in talking about these individuals. Paul is not given to hyperbole unless it's obvious from the text, which I think we saw a little bit of that in Second Corinthians. Uh, so Paul is speaking very seriously. He's not doing this to brag about them. I think he's doing this to let them know that he does sincerely care for them. And so that's why, he, again, he says it. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle, or we can read it this way, how often I wrestle for you in prayer, for you in the city of Laodicea, and for all of those who have not seen me, for all those who have not met him. So that he gets, we haven't met. He says, but I have this I have this." commitment to you, this loyalty to you. Um, and uh, of course, as we know, when it comes to the epistles, the epistles were letters that were not only written to a specific group, but then they would be passed around to the churches uh, to read. Um, so but that didn't bother Paul. He would still deal with personal things, uh, but at the same time, it was to be uh, used as an encouragement or a warning, depending on what was going on in the letter. Uh, for all the churches. Uh, but this is what he's saying to them and what he wants them to know. So as he prays for them, he then, as you get into verse 2, he begins to let them know what it is he's specifically praying for. Um, there's, there's at least five of these in the epistles, five uh, prayers of Paul um, that you can really kind of study. There's some overlap in what they're, what they're talking about or what his request is. Uh, but they're, they're really good to be familiar with because they can also be a good guide to help us to pray for others um, because we also want to make sure we don't get stuck to where we're only praying for people's physical needs. I'm not against that. I think it's great to pray for the physical needs of others. Um, but I do think we have to be careful that we don't only do that. And it is. It's very easy and very tempting for churches to do that. Um, you kind of have to be on guard for that. Um, we end up praying. You know, If you look at most church... Uh, prayer lists. Ours is like that. There are, a lot of those are, you know, the names of individuals who have cancer, uh, individuals who are uh, dealing with other types of, you know, crises or circumstances in their lives. And we do want to bring those to the Lord. We never want to somehow say, well, those aren't important. We're not saying that. But we never want to leave the most important things alone, which is 
because the most important thing is spiritual growth in the life of those who are believers and for non-believers to come to understand that they have a great need for Christ and to come to, to Christ in faith. And so we want to make sure that we don't overlook that. So even when we pray for, um, like, you know, right now in the hospital, you know, there's Ray Gruber's in the hospital, and uh, Barbara Nix is in the hospital, Shemel Lewis is in the hospital. We know that Richie needs, uh, is on medicine for his AFib, and we don't know if that's going to work. Hopefully that'll work for him. If it doesn't, he's going to have to have an ablation. So there's, those individuals definitely have very serious physical things that we should be bringing before the Lord. But along with that, when we pray for them, we also want to make sure that we're praying for them spiritually. Even if you don't know all the things that are going on in the life spiritually, we can still pray for them. That God will strengthen not only their bodies, uh, but that they will continue to rely on God, to trust God. That they won't worry about their condition and what may or may not happen. Uh, that that their confidence will be in the Lord and not in the doctors or the nurses or whoever. Because that can be kind of, you know, depending on what's going on that day, you know, you can get different... um, vibes from maybe the medical staff. Um, we want to pray that the Lord will use this in their life. It, it may be used by God to help them realize that they do rely upon the Lord. Maybe it's a wake-up call that they, don't, that they don't rely upon the Lord as much as they should. It may be something that is used by God in their lives so that it would give them opportunity to share maybe more things with their family. You know, the family's all worried and sometimes it's hard for the family because they want to do something but they can't. You know, they're not doctors, they, they're just, they're concerned. And so uh, maybe they'll notice that the, the person who's the patient is, is, seems to be calm, is not too worried, and, you, and we have the ability to share with them, you know, this personal peace uh, that we are experiencing from God. And that gives us that opportunity to talk to them about that. They see that being lived out before them. That really is, can be very powerful. They may still ignore it, um, but it, it's a witness to really the goodness and the graciousness of God. Um, and again, obviously that would include the, the nursing staff. Uh, in fact, one of the things that I pray for, especially those who are older and are having physical issues, I pray that when they do interact with staff, that the staff won't think this. So let's say it's Mr. Ron, and he's in the hospital. I don't want them to think, well, Mr. Ron talked to the Lord, but you know how it is with older people. You know, they... You know, they're more religious, and they just kind of dismiss it. So I pray that won't happen. I pray that what they will see is the genuineness of what he's saying. That he's not just saying it out of habit, though it may be a habit. That he's saying it because he he has convictions about these things that he believes. That God really does answer prayer. That God is seeing him through this. That God is going to give the doctor wisdom. All those things. So I pray then that the Lord will prevent that kind of attitude from taking place. So there can be a great deal really for us to pray for when it comes to uh, individuals in these different kinds of situations. Uh, And again, this is what Paul is doing. So in verse 2, again, it reads this way. Uh, Again, he's talking about those in Colossae, Laodicea, and others that he's not yet met. He says he's praying that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So I've talked a little bit about this before. Um, It's good for us to review this because oftentimes when it comes to the word heart, uh, because of the culture we live in and the time we live in, we uh, relate uh, the heart to just the emotions. We'll talk about an individual having a broken heart. That's what we mean. Um, they're deeply hurt for whatever the reason. But again, the way that the Bible uses the word heart is differently. Uh, in the Bible, it primarily refers to the intellect. So we tend to use the word mind most of the time for the intellect. And it's not bad. It's just understanding what the Bible means when it uses the word heart. Um, and so it's never excluding the intellect. I would say that it's primarily the intellect. It may not be only the intellect, but again, that's primary. And you can, I think we can see that um, because of how it's used. For example, Matthew 15, verse 19, what does Jesus say? Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and slanders. So when you read that, you don't get the idea that some individual's emotions are out of control. Okay, what you, because he begins with, out of the heart come evil thoughts. 
right? So it's the seat of thinking, right? It may be a combination of desires, but it's, again, it's not, it's not divorced from the, the, the thinking of how we would relate the mind. So the Bible also tells us that we have to watch over our heart with all diligence. So again, that's not, you need to make sure you keep your emotions in check. I do think we do, but that's not what he's talking about there. The idea is is what we are thinking, what's going on on the inside, the inner person, or the inner man. Now, the secondary way the heart um, is used in the Bible is it does relate to the will and to the emotions. So again, it's not completely divorced from them. Uh, so it's at least that. All right, It's thinking uh, or intellect, will, and emotions. So when you come across heart... Uh, being used in, in uh, this kind of way, when it's obviously not talking about the physical organ, uh, it's good to remind yourself of what is being um, focused on. Uh, because this is how then we approach uh, the, the life of a Christian. Right? The life of a Christian is not primarily emotional. Emotions are great. Right? But remember, uh, you know, I, I ask with this at times, you know, when they say, well, you know, I know that I'm saved. I go, well, how do you know that? And they go, well, because when I believed in Jesus, I just felt so much better. And that's great. But that is not how you know you're saved. Because what happens on a day you don't feel that way? All right, then now we have a problem. And there are people that their trust, maybe their sense of peace with the Lord, wavers greatly based on how they feel that day. There's a lot of anxiety. God is far away. Remember, we're called to live by faith. What is faith? Well, we're trusting in God. Well, what are we trusting in? Well, we're trusting in what he has said about himself. So that's, that's the mind. That's the intellect. I know these things intellectually about God. So I know, not only do I know I can trust him, I know what I am trusting him for. Okay? So I know then that wherever I am, you know, when I'm driving my truck and all of a sudden I, I think of someone and I, I pray right then. I don't pull over and get on my knees and bow my head and close my eyes. I know that wherever I am, I can just pray. At that moment, I know that God hears me. How do I know that? Well, I didn't just make that up. I, I know that from the Word of God. Uh, and so, uh, again, we don't, we don't live by our emotions, though we have emotions all the time. Um, we we want to make sure that we're not allowing our emotions to dictate um, how we respond to the world. Emotions, again, may be very strong, and that's good. Emotion, God can use emotions in our lives as a great motivating factor. Um, again, uh, if, you hit, if you get word that one of your children or your grandchild has been in an accident, you are definitely motivated by your love and by your emotions at that moment to pray for them. All right? So that's a wonderful thing. That's not a bad thing. At the same time, if you get mad at somebody and you want to hit them or you want to do this or do that, we know that's a bad thing. You don't want to be led by your emotions in that way. So uh, the heart then does relate to the the intellect, the will, the emotions. Uh, The will and the emotions are influenced by the intellect. So I was was answering someone's question the other day on on Facebook, and sometimes uh, that can be a good thing because it forces you to try to express something short in a short, because you can't write a whole three-page treatise. No one's going to read that. Um, so sometimes when we go through difficult situations, we don't always feel the peace of God. There's, we, we are still feeling the turmoil or the tension of whatever it is that's going on. So sometimes we may think, okay, I've prayed, I am trusting the Lord, or maybe we may thinking I'm trying to trust the Lord, but I don't understand, I don't feel His peace. When does that come? Well, Often, but not always, the peace of God comes along a little later. But I'm going to divide it up for you to help you understand what I mean by that. So the emotion or the feeling of God's peace comes later. But what precedes that? What precedes that is, I guess we say the intellect. So in this, so if I'm in this situation where there's tension and, and there's difficulty that I'm going through, I know again what the scripture says, so I know that God is with me. I know that whatever's going on has passed through the hands of God first. Nothing can happen in my life that God is not approving of. We can save the discussion as to why he's approved this later, but the idea is is that nothing happens to us by accident. I know that whatever's going on, God is going to use it for his glory, and 
He is going to use it for my good. Probably my spiritual good, but it's going to be for my good. So I know all of these things intellectually. So my mind then should be calmed because I understand theologically what the scripture says about God's presence in my life and God's working in my life. So my, so my mind can actually be calming down while in a sense in my heart or maybe even in your chest you're still feeling a sense of anxiety. But you're not allowing it to get the best of you because you're actively engaging your mind in thinking about what the Bible says. Then in time, whether that's three minutes, 30 minutes, there's, there's no way, it's different for everyone. It the time thing doesn't matter. But in time, my heart, in a sense, or my emotions will begin to calm in relation to what I'm thinking. And so then at that moment, whenever that comes, I will then begin to feel the peace of God. Now, depending on the situation we're going through and and our emotional makeup, and maybe how spiritual we are as far as our maturity is, that may go up and down depending on the length of this conflict or turmoil, whatever it is. And but but it's not. It should never get the best of us where sheer panic sets in, because our mind is calm by the Word of God and what it says. So even when I say that our mind is calm by the Word of God, I don't mean that in a superstitious sense. That if I just quote some Bible verses, it works like magic. No, it's the, it's the content. It's what it means. It's what it's telling me. And in particular, what it's telling me about Christ. What it's telling me about God. So, if you kind of back up and analyze your life, that's kind of how it comes. For some individuals, for whatever the reason, the emotion or the sense of God's peace may come very rapidly. May come like boom. All right? we, can, we can talk... 30 minutes as to all the different reasons why that can happen. Uh, but it doesn't always happen that way for everyone. Again, for many reasons. But we should never think, because this is where the temptation comes in, sometimes we may begin to think where we begin to doubt God because we're thinking, well, look, I trust in Him, I've prayed, and I'm not feeling His peace. So I guess God's not going to answer my prayer. You know, we, we get impatient. We want it now. That may even be more the fact because we're Americans, but not necessarily. Um... Uh, but so, so think of it that way. So the, so the sense of God's peace is going to come normally trails a little bit the engagement of my intellect as I'm trusting in what God has said, believing what the scripture says, and allowing the word of God and the truth of the word of God to calm my mind. And so that's kind of how that works. All right? So, um, so when, again, when it comes to our heart, that's why the Bible expresses itself the way that it does when it comes to our heart. Uh, and how God works in our heart and works on our heart. So, um, so again, the will and the emotions are influenced by the intellect. So, again, I'm not saying that in a stoic way, um, but we are dissecting, I guess you would say, in the way that faith works. Uh, it works, it coincides with the way that God has designed us. Uh, and God has designed us in that way. That's why... Often, in churches, and even in Christian education, there's always been a great emphasis on the mind. Disciplining the mind, and how do we do that? Well, part of that happens from the discipline of reading Scripture, studying Scripture, then meditating on Scripture, thinking about it. Uh, Remember that when we talk about meditation in the Christian life, uh, this is not the emptying of the mind kind of thing. That's Hinduism. Uh, There's no such thing as emptying the mind in Christianity. It's always a bad thing. Uh, We want to fill our mind with what the Word of God says. So meditation, then, is, in a sense, mulling over what the Word of God says, whether you're thinking of maybe a particular word or a particular verse or a particular chapter or whatever it happens to be, we're thinking on those things. So, again, we're engaging the intellect as we're thinking about what that Scripture means and then how it applies to my life, or how it applies to my situation. Um, and so that, that's so again, God's always all these things God gives to us uh, works in conjunction with the way He's designed us, the way that He's created us. Um, that's why there's no it's no accident that our lives change so much as we engage by reading the Word of God, um, and that's why it's an important discipline. Um, and again, it's, and it's not based on you being able to read for three hours straight. Um, but it does. It is important to be able to read. Yes, Eileen. Do you think that 
of salvation comes first by our intellectual understanding of Scripture and... If we dissect it out, I would say yes, because what is it that we have to understand first? That we're sinners, and that we're separated from God. That's, that's an intellectual thing before emotional. Now, it may be simultaneous. You know, you, you don't want to get into where you're splitting hairs. But again, when we, when we present the gospel, we're always presenting the gospel really to the mind of the person, right? We want them to understand this is why Jesus came. This is who Jesus is. This is why Jesus died. It's all based on the information or on the truth. So, yeah, it's intellectual first in that sense. So, it's like splitting hairs, too. You think of people that don't have the capacity to understand the gospel? Yes, there may be, absolutely. We know of we, people don't use the word retarded anymore, but there are individuals who are retarded. Um, and people sometimes wonder about them. And for me, it's really very simple. I've placed that individual in the same category as I would uh, an infant or a child. Um, I do think sometimes we underestimate what a child can understand. But then it depends. Some individuals are retarded and they have the understanding of a four-year-old. There's others who are retarded and they have the understanding of a 12-year-old. So there's a difference. Uh, the one who's like the 12-year-old does understand certain concepts about sin. Um, and if you interact with them, you, you can see that. So yes, so there are definitely individuals who don't have the capacity either because uh, it's congenital or maybe they were in an accident or maybe because of abuse of drugs or whatever. Um, they've come to that point. That can definitely happen. Uh, but you, I think, also remember this, that making the gospel simple, even if you're talking to an adult, never diminishes what the gospel is. So if I'm, when I'm talking to my grandchildren, when I talk to the five-year-old about the atonement, I'm explaining it so they can understand it. And I would do the same thing if I'm talking to somebody who maybe um, uh, have a learning disability. And, and, sure. Absolutely. He appeals to a lot of people because we do learn or understand things in different ways. Uh, absolutely. Um, I've done that with inmates. I've done it with high school kids. Um, and, uh, and then with my children and my grandchildren. And then uh, other kids. When I first started teaching, I was 16. I was teaching kids. Um, and so you learn a lot in trying to break things down to help them to understand. Because you never want to compromise or diminish what the Bible says. You want to explain it so they can get it. Um, so yes, uh, we definitely want to do that, try to do that. Um, and, but again, it's, yes, it's through the, it is through the, through the intellect. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, so again, in most modern cultures, which would probably be more of a Western thing, uh, because it's still not this way in many Asian countries, uh, you know, we keep thinking of the heart as being the seat of emotions and feelings. Uh, but in the uh, Semitic world, uh, Hebrews, the Hebrew people, uh, Greeks, uh, they consider the heart to be the center of knowledge. And so again, that is how the word heart is used uh, in the Bible. So it's a good thing to remember. Uh, again, the heart, that's where um, knowledge is, that's where understanding is, that's where thinking is, that's where wisdom is. Um, so when I speak to my grandchildren sometimes... Um, when I praise them for thinking through something really well, I will, I try to make an emphasis to do two things. Um, I would, you know, I'll say, wow, I said, you know, you are using your brain in the way that God designed it. That's wonderful. And I'll explain to them what they're doing. And I'll say, then, I, then I'll add to that, God's given you a heart of wisdom. And then I'll talk a little bit about what that means. Um, so I'm just using just incrementally, but getting them used to the idea um, that's how. That's what heart is, and that's how we understand God. And again, how God created us, and all the other stuff. Um, so, again, all that really is, I think, really, really very important, and is very is very helpful for us when it comes to our growth again as Christians, um, as we seek to mature in the in the Word of God. So, again, the heart was considered to be the seat of the mind and the will. Uh, and there were, actually there were those who believed that the heart could be taught what the brain could never know. We'll kind of figure that out through time um, because you know, we, we are uh, holistic people and we can be pretty complicated, which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. So again, uh, looking at uh, verse 2, he says um, that their hearts may be encouraged. Uh, so again, encouraged there is simply what it means. He got 
uh, Paul wants their hearts, their mind, and their will, and their emotions to be encouraged in the faith. He wants to see them grow as believers. He, he wants to see them improve and increase knowledge. And you remember that for these individuals, well, we'll separate two groups. Those of a Jewish background were very accustomed to religion being this. But pagans, remember, they're con- most pagans back in those days, the idea that your religion was there to give you wisdom, and that was not what the religion did for them. Religion was nothing but a ritual, or certain rituals to make your God happy or less angry. Uh, they Fertility things, because you want good crops. Whatever it happened to be, uh, you'd hire a magician uh, or a wizard to try to find a way, the secret way to appease your God. Um, but, this, but your gods, these pagan religions, whether you went to the Temple of Diana or whatever, there was no lectures on how to be a good husband. It didn't exist. There's, there's nothing about, um, you know, the, the family uh, that believes in Diana. How do they function? That, that doesn't exist. Right? There's no moral teaching uh, that comes out of those pagan religions. Now, today, there are some pagan religions that do have that, uh, but back then, primarily, all of your pagan religions didn't have any of that. So for those who were, had a non-Jewish background, all of this is brand new stuff. You know, this idea that you're going to mature in your faith and your understanding and that you're going to gain um, in, in wisdom and knowledge. I mean, that was just phenomenal. Along with this idea that God was even interested in you as an individual and that God communicated to you and that you could communicate to God. All of that was just phenomenal. And that's why sometimes in Acts you'll read that when Paul and others would go to the synagogues and they would teach. Oftentimes there would be Gentiles in the synagogue. But those Gentiles were there for two primary reasons. There were some who were there because they were maybe transitioning to to believing in Judaism to a degree. But there's also many that came there because they were just intrigued by this religion that the Jews had where they're, they're taught moral lessons out of their book. I mean, they never heard of that. And so they were very keyed in on that. And maybe because they were thinking that there had to be more to their spiritual life than just appeasing, you know, Bacchus, the god of wine, by getting drunk. You know, that still leaves you pretty empty. You know, and these people are fulfilled, and they have this wonderful life. You know, they seem to be fulfilled. What is that? And that's why they would go to the synagogue. So um, just kind of keep in mind that for us, which is very normal, uh, and what we, what we think everyone thinks religion is, that's not what was going on then or there. Uh, for many of these individuals, this was still all brand new. But then he adds to this. He says, after he wants them to be encouraged, he mentions about them being knit together in love. So Paul brings up this idea of, of them standing strong in unity. Remember we talked a little, a little bit over several weeks about the heresy that Paul was writing against that was going on in, in Colossae. Um, even though it had elements of Gnosticism, Gnosticism itself hadn't developed yet, so it wasn't that. But there was some, there was some heresy that was going on, so Paul is concerned about that. But I think he wants it to be attacked in two ways. One is he is giving them intellectual knowledge, but the other is they stand together. They stand together and figure this thing out and work through it, um, kind of a thing. Um, and so it's... Christianity is never presented as only being just an intellectual thing. It's never just a mind thing. But it's also, it's never just an emotional thing. It's both. Um, that's very important to Paul. It's very important to Jesus. Um, and so this unity, which he talks about again, is something that, on one hand, is created by the Spirit of God. It is, it's natural among believers. We actually are already united in Christ. Right? Um, so if all of a sudden... Nick becomes a believer, you know, and I say, so I'm so happy for you that you now uh, trust in Christ. I don't say, man, I can't wait till one day you're my brother too. You know? And you say, well, what does that happen? Well, I guess it's when you learn some more stuff, dude. No, what happens is, is we, are, we are now brothers in Christ. We, we are now in the same family. I may have more knowledge than him, but that ain't the basis of it. It's who Christ is. And so, um, there are many aspects of that, that that are important in withstanding heresy. So, simple example. So let's say 
Nick meets someone at work who's just this radical heretic. And this guy is just coming from out he is in left field. And so he starts talking to Nick every day about this stuff he believes. And so Nick brings it up to me. And let's say that whatever it is, it's one of those things that, I mean, I can answer it, but it's not going to be in 30 seconds. It's this, really we're talking about, there's a bunch of stuff that's going on here. However, he's my brother. He knows I'm his brother. So he, so he in the beginning, is going to be thinking, hopefully, well, Bob thinks this guy's a heretic. He's my brother. So we're sticking together. I'm gonna, he's, he's not going to be swayed yet because of the relationship we have. Eventually, he'll get there and you'll have the knowledge. But in the beginning, what is actually strengthening him is the fact that we're brothers, is the relationship we have. Okay, so my strength, in that sense, is going to help him through this difficulty and he doesn't even know what's going on yet. Right? That's a good thing. It's a great thing. You, you, know, you don't want to use that to manipulate people. That's a bad thing. But the idea is, is our being together is really very important. People resist bad teaching for all kinds of reasons. And many individuals have been spared the adverse effects of bad teaching because they have a solid relationship with someone they trust. And so that's, again, the importance of the church um, and why we, we want to continue to um, impress upon others that we never want to be just like the Kiwanis Club where, yeah, we get together for lunch once a month and I know so-and-so and he might be a good person to call when I've got a new product to sell but we don't really know each other. You know, we're acquaintances. We want to move beyond that um, and to where we actually have we really do care. Now the Lord is the one who brings about most of that uh, but we can either hinder that work or assist that work in just how we approach things, how we approach people, and how we approach life. Um, and there's a lot of obstacles today just because of all the distractions there are and the busyness of life. You know, there's just a lot of that. Uh, but we try to work through that and continue to, um, as we read the Bible, I think we'll see the importance of that. Um, I was talking to someone today about this, and this is one of the things that we have to remember. So, so when it comes to our faithfulness to church, so, you know, sometimes... Um, we may be tempted to say, you know, church has got this thing going on, but I don't really want to go. I'm tired, you know. And so church is not always, our attendance to church is not always because we need it. If you skip that, you're not going to suddenly lose your Christianity. But remember that for many other people, they may need you there. Your presence in their life the fact that, that as you gather as you gather together, I'm not the only one who needs fellowship. They need fellowship too. Um, I've mentioned this before, and it's what we have to be careful of. I'm very fortunate. Okay, I'm, I'm extremely fortunate. All of my kids know the Lord. All of my kids' spouses know the Lord. All of my grandkids are being raised in a Christian home. Some stronger than others, but they're all being raised in a Christian home. Uh, some of my grandchildren who... Uh, know enough are believers, that's wonderful praying for the others all of my, I have two sisters both my sisters know the Lord their husbands know the Lord my nieces and nephews, they know the Lord my parents know the Lord Uh, Cindy's dad knows the Lord so a vast majority of my family knows the Lord that is a wonderful blessing in a church where there's a large mixture of people there are some, they don't have that so even, the, even if they're close to their family emotionally, there's still an element that's missing because they cannot be close spiritually. That's an impossibility. And, and in maybe in many other cases, and it seems to be more so now, there, I don't like to use the word dysfunction because I think in one sense all of us have dysfunctional families, but there are some where families are much more dysfunctional than others. And so this gathering of believers... This is their peace. This is their encouragement. This is this is this is where they are encouraged uh, in life. This is important for them. In, in a sense, it's more important for them than for me. I'm not saying it's not important for me, but they have a greater sense of its importance in their life because they don't possess what some of us possess, and we don't want to steal that from them. 
So that's why the Bible uses different imagery for our relationship together. And one of the things that we talk about is the family of God. And that's why brothers and sisters, you know, we don't just do that because we want to somehow be Amish. The idea is that we really are, we really are that in Christ. We are adopted as children in the family of God. And I've talked to individuals, I've heard individuals express, um, and we, we don't always know the kind of inner turmoil that some people have because their family is just out to lunch. And they really, and maybe as they mature as believers, they feel a greater vacuum when they're with their family. They, they, they're just more aware that they're not the same. And it's hard. And so they feel so good to be with other believers. And so we need to remember that. Because sometimes, you know, we can kind of diminish our importance. Well, you know, I don't really have that much to contribute. I don't do this. I don't do that. Well, we should never underestimate maybe the power you have in someone's life or how God's going to use you in someone else's life. Because God often does that. Um, I just remember as a kid, when I was growing up uh, in our church, um, again, I have a good family, but when I was playing football in high school, um, there was a bunch of people in the church who, of course, there's a lot, not, not a lot going on in the 70s, but anyway, there are a lot of people in the church who live in the town who would come to the football game because they knew somebody who was playing. It was number 74 out there, that skinny kid that's, you know, loves football. Man, that was awesome. Just, I mean, I, I felt, I mean, I, I think I had experiences that a lot of people didn't have. I had this extended family that it mattered a little bit to them. They didn't care if we won or lost, but they were out there to see... I was called Bobby. <laughs> Little Bobby. But I had to see Bobby play, you know? And it was awesome. And so, you know, when, as we celebrate, as, as, you know, we, people in the church have kids and we see them grow up and we, all these things we do together, you know, that, that's meeting many spiritual, emotional, intellectual needs that people have. And God's designed the church to do that. And again, we are established in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation that God is not going to remove us from. Because Philippians says he's placed us here to shine his lights. And so we need each other to continue to be encouraged and to grow and being together as part of that. So we'll end it there, um, and we'll pick it up at that point um, next week. Uh, but I just hope that as we go through these things, that it just it, uh, you know, kind of uh, stir up your imagination some more as we read through these letters and maybe try to think a little more in depth um, about what Paul is saying and why he's saying the things he's saying the way that he is. Father, as always, we're grateful for your kindness, your goodness, and your love. We just thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have to just to take the Bible and, and to read it through slowly and to consider the words, the phrases, the sentences, and the paragraphs uh, in which you have preserved and delivered these things to us. We ask, Lord, that your truth would continue to sink deep into our hearts and minds and cause us, Father, to think biblically in every way. We know, Lord, that you've been patient with us. We thank you for that. We know, Lord, that you've placed many wonderful people in our lives, throughout our lives, to help us along the way. We thank you for that as well. We pray, Lord, that you would use us in the same way in the lives of others. Whether we really ever know about it or not is totally unimportant. But just help us to be aware, Lord, that indeed you do and you will use us in the lives of others, and we do want to be a blessing. Keep us safe now, Father, as we go home. Again, we just thank you so much for being uh, the one who watches over us and answers our prayers. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.